You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. Hi there, I'm Renee Jones, and later on in this episode, I sit down with Malcolm Davis and Hannah Smith to talk through the Siege of Winterfell in the latest episode of Game of Thrones. So major spoiler warning here, if you're not up to date on Game of Thrones and don't want to hear our analysis of the Siege of Winterfell, stop listening once you hear me introduce that segment. But first up, our roving reporter Brendan Nicholson sat down with Mike Rogers, who is currently at Aspie's Cyber Centre as a Distinguished Visiting Fellow. Mike Rogers was the commander of the United States Cyber Command and the director of the National Security Agency. Admiral Mike Rogers, welcome to Australia. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Mike, it appears that the United Kingdom Cabinet has decided to allow the Chinese company Huawei to build part of Britain's 5G network. Does that present a security problem for Britain And how seriously is that decision likely to be viewed by the other members of the Five Eyes intelligence sharing network? So first, let's remember the British have not officially made a decision. Their official position is this is a matter under deliberation and sometime in the spring they expect to release it. You have seen press reporting, as you've indicated in the last Mm. day or so, that have said, hey, look, it appears based on um, sourcing from the media that the British are going to approve some Um, level of Huawei installation within the national 5G infrastructure in the United Kingdom. So whether that's going to happen or not, we'll wait and see. So I'll answer the question as if that were to happen. So if that were to be the decision of our um, UK compatriots, first, I always told everyone, it's up to each nation state to determine what's the right answer for them. And what's right for one may not be for another one. And I certainly acknowledge it. And this is an issue I think almost every nation, particularly, uh, you know, industrialized nations are coming to grips with right now. Australia has gone through a a similar process within the last year and ultimately came to the conclusion that they felt that there was a level of risk that they just weren't comfortable with. And therefore, Huawei would not be allowed to be part of the 5G infrastructure within Australia. In the United States, this is still a topic of discussion. We're still working our our way through this. And so my general position always was, both when I was in the government as the director of NSA and the commander of cyber came in, I was part of those policy discussions for us. I said, first, this oil boils down to what level of risk are you comfortable with? Secondly, I said, look, I would make this less about a specific nation or a specific company and much more about how does a nation ensure its economic competitiveness in the digital age, because I think 5G, you need to look at through the prism of not just traditional national security, but national security in a more broader sense, economic competitiveness. My concern always was, boy, 5G I think is gonna be such a fundamental aspect of a nation state's economic competitiveness as we move forward in the future. I would be worried about something that could potentially call into question that economic competitiveness. And therefore, my recommendation generally always was, we need to go into this with our eyes open. It's all about risk. There are some areas where I think you could potentially take some level of risk, but there are other areas where I would say the risk is very high, and I'd be really concerned about having any entity that you did not have complete confidence in the ability to know exactly what that entity has provided and some measure of control or oversight, that if you felt you couldn't have that. The other thing that becomes very complex with 5G is because 
So much of the capability is not centralized, but is spread out across the network. It becomes much more difficult to mitigate the risk. And so there's some interesting uh, reporting also about how UK, the National Cybersecurity Center in the United Kingdom, for example, has publicly talked about. So we think there are some means to address risk in terms of the different aspects, different components of the 5G structure. On the other hand, we are concerned also if you read what uh, they had to say, they also indicated concerns with Huawei's quality control, Huawei's fixing of software and other issues that have been raised as part of the cell, if you will, that the United Kingdom created previously when they came to a conclusion that they wanted to allow Huawei into the British telecommunications network. A former Australian Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, commented recently in the United States that he'd raised with President Trump his concern that 5G technology was available from a very limited number of providers none of whom were in the United States. Can the US catch up in this field and provide the sort of technology that countries like Australia need, which would simplify our dilemma? So I I think the challenge, and I don't want to put word in the former prime minister's mouth, but my sense is what he's trying to communicate was, so the challenge is, if you don't like fill in the blank company, Huawei or some other alternative, what is an alternative that is acceptable to you? Hey, how do we create an environment where there are commercial options that Australia, the United States, the United Kingdom, Japan, others would feel comfortable with? And right now, part of the economic challenge here is Huawei has positioned itself in a way, quite frankly, when it comes to 5G capability and at the price point they can provide that capability that Right now, U.S. firms and other nations can't really match. So I think the answer is we need to step back and ask ourselves, so how did that happen? Why has that happened? Are we comfortable with that? And so what I would hope is governments could potentially come together and say, look, so how do we generate other alternatives for ourselves and other nations to consider? Can't there be more than one vendor here that that provides a good price point, so to speak, Um, and that does it in a way that doesn't bring up some of these questions about risk. Hey, can you trust a particular vendor? Hey, what's the relationship between that vendor, that company, and its nation state? Is that vendor, is that company from an authoritarian state where the legal regime, for example, means the government can access data purely upon its request? Doesn't have to go through a court, doesn't have to go through any kind of independent verification, if you will, or independent justification. It can just tell the company, you're a corporate entity from our nation. The law says I can have access to whatever data I want, and this is what I want. Um, I I think we need to spend some time, the United States, Australia, others. So what do we need to do to develop a viable alternative here? How can we help industry? Mr. Turnbull also raised concerns that the threshold for response to cyber attacks on Western nations was very high. Before you left Cyber Command, you set in place a different approach to offensive cyber operations which I understand included the concept of defending forward. How important is that and how can it be done? And what impact can it have on criminals or another nation's agencies? How do we, I thought the challenge was, so how do we change the risk calculus of actors out there, whether they be nation states, criminal actors, how do we get them to start thinking that, you know, Perhaps the risk that I'm going to incur by engaging in some of these aggressive actions, stealing intellectual property on a massive scale, interfering with elections um, and other democratic processes, penetrating infrastructure, power, water, 
petroleum, financial, other areas that are a huge concern to any nation. How could we convince those actors that they need to step back and think and perhaps say to themselves, you know, while I could do this, the risk is pretty high and maybe it's not in my best interest to do so. I thought that was the challenge because I, I thought, look, if we continue to just respond passively to this, we wait for people to come after our networks. We wait for people to steal our intellectual property. And then we're just responding. I thought that is, it's a losing strategy. It's a reactive strategy. It is resource intensive. And my experience as a military leader has always taught me, you want to shape the behaviors of any potential adversary. You want to drive them to make choices that actually benefit you, not them. And yet, if we're just going to sit here and respond after the event, I thought, we're not doing that. We're not shaping the choices they're making. And it's a very labor-intensive and resource-intensive approach. So one of the arguments that I and others don't want to pretend for, any one for one minute that Mike Rogers was the only individual, but one of the arguments I and others made was, so we've got to ask ourselves, how could we change that risk calculus? And one of the ways I thought was a part of such an idea would be, why can't we start to talk about cyber is one element of a broad set of capabilities that we, the United States, have at our disposal. We are prepared to use that range of capabilities at the right place and the right time within an international legal framework with a sense of proportionality, being very discreet and very specific. But I thought it was important that adversaries know the United States has cyber capabilities and the United States is prepared to use them at the time and place of our choosing if... You insist on engaging in these risky escalatory behaviors. And so I think you've seen a shift in the last 18 months to this idea that we have got to be operating forward, that we just can't sit outside the network waiting for somebody to penetrate and then responding. That, that's just a losing strategy. In actual physical terms, what would this involve? Somebody, country X, um, carries out a cyber attack that, dis that disables our power supply in the middle of winter, and Cyber Command then responds. What does that response involve? Is it something physical? Is it sending messages down the line that, that disable computer networks at the other end? So there's a full range of possibilities. The first comment I'd make is, remember, just because someone comes at a particular nation or a particular target in cyber does not mean that the default response should always be since they came at us in cyber, we're going to do the exact same thing. My argument was, let's look at the full range of capabilities that we enjoy as a nation, and let's figure out which of the tools we have makes the most sense in this particular scenario, given the target they were going after, given the impact they had, and given the effect, if you will, that it shouldn't be one size fits all. Among the tools you might consider, though, are how could you use cyber potentially as one option? We spend a lot of time United States, Australia, other nations trying to understand who the cyber actors are out there. You gain a level of knowledge over time, sometimes down to the individual person level. Because remember, for all this activity, somewhere in the world, there's a man or woman sitting at a keyboard. There's a human dynamic in all this. And so what if you wanted that human element to be aware, I know who you are, I know what you're doing, I know where you're working. You might want to stop and think about what it is you're doing. Whether that would be you could potentially be indicted, whether that might be, you might start to receive messages saying, hey, are you sure you really want to keep doing this? This is fill in the blank organization. Um, it might be, so I know the infrastructure you use. If we were able to use capabilities designed to degrade, deny, 
take away that infrastructure, stop your ability for at least some period of time to do it. So there's a, there's a whole range of options out there. Again, I'm not a person who argued the answer is, boy, they come at us in cyber, we have to go back. Nor am I a person who argued, you know, we're going to go back and hit them 10, time hard, 10 times harder. That is not the right approach to me. Should be very specific, should be very proportional, and we want to do this within a legal framework. But we need to fundamentally change the risk calculus of nation state and criminal actors. Because you look at what this is costing the United States, Australia, others. It is billions of dollars in the theft of intellectual property. It is potentially over time placing some of our critical infrastructure at risk as opponents penetrate that infrastructure, study it, potentially look at changing it, degrading it, denying it over time. Those aren't in anybody's best interest, and we don't want that to happen. Mike, how important was the elevation of cyber command to a combatant command and what does that signify about the United States defense establishment's level of concern about cyber threats? You know, number one, I was a proponent of that. Now, before I got into the job, before I became the com- commander, commander of Cyber Command, I was a proponent of elevation. One of my biggest concerns was I thought, to the department's credit, in some ways we were already being treated as a combatant commander. But my comment was we don't want to make this personality-based. It should be based on a structure and a system that everybody understands. And if you look at the way the Department of Defense in the United States is organized, combatant commanders, as the senior operational commanders in the DOD, they are a key part of discussions about strategy, resources, prioritization. I said, look, that's how important cyber is. Cyber command, as the operational commander in the DOD for the application of cyber capabilities for the department, needs to work at that level, needs to be part of those discussions. And the way the department is structured, that's what combatant commanders do. That's why we need to be there. And it also was a a real positive in terms of speed. We heard a presentation today setting out the extraordinary resources that cyber criminals can apply. How serious is cybercrime likely to become? Might it become a serious threat to nation's infrastructure? And how will the world deal with it? So first, as much attention as the nation states receive, China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, as much attention as they receive, I always remind everyone, the greatest set of activities out there actually aren't nation state, they're criminal. If you just look at the volume of activity of concern within the cyber arena, the criminal actor is really the greatest level of activity. And that's because, look, criminals use cyber as a vehicle to generate money, revenue. As a, they just do it in an illegal manner, using cyber as a tool to penetrate systems, to steal credit card information, steal personally identifiable information, run scams and other things. And quite frankly, for the majority of citizens, the greatest impact, they're like the greatest involvement with cyber they're likely to have is, in particular in their personal lives, is from a criminal actor. Someone steals their identity, someone steals a credit card. And that's a huge amount of economic activity. It has an impact on someone steals your credit card information. So now I have to go to the bank. I got to get a new card issued. We got to stop. So there's an impact on organizations and individuals with this kind of activity. You know, what I think will be interesting to see is, does the non-state actor, in this case, we're talking about criminal entities, Does the non-state actor start to apply, does that criminal actor start to apply their capabilities with other non-state actors, say terrorist groups, or 
do you see either because the nation state does it or the criminal does it, do you start to see partnerships, sharing of tools, sharing of people, going after common sets of targets? Do you start to see nation states turning to criminal actors as a way to, for example, to hide attribution? Do you see criminal actors turning to nation states saying, look, if you will give me some level of protection, um, you know, so I'm not thrown in jail, I'm not extradited. Um, if you'll give me some level of protection, I'm prepared to apply my criminal activities, capabilities in cyber to potentially support the nation state. You rub my, you know, you rub my back, I'll rub your back. You know, we need to be paying attention to that. When the internet was established decades ago, it was largely seen as a very positive institution and a way to spread information and knowledge generally particularly to people who didn't have access to educational resources and others, and that, and that basically has happened. It's certainly done that. But it's also been a vehicle for hate speech and the promotion of terrible brutality. Is the whole system beyond control, or given your close experience with monitoring it, do you believe the positive side of the internet can dominate as a force for good? So I think, bottom line, the positive advantages of this global connectivity, this access to knowledge at a scale down to individual users anywhere in the world, this access to knowledge at a level we have never seen. I mean, the average person today around the world literally has more access to information than anyone ever in the history of the world. That can be both a positive force for good, growth on a personal basis, economic growth, sharing of information, the ability of widely dispersed individuals to come together to coalesce and become a force for good around issues of concern, those are all real positives. And the positives far outweigh the negatives. But as you indicate, we also have to acknowledge there are some negative aspects to this global unfettered connectivity and the ability to move information and coordinate around the world. It, it kind of goes back to, you know, most people don't think about it now, but the predecessor, predecessor, if you will, or precursor to the World Wide Web, the internet, was actually started in the late 1960s by the Department of Defense when they posed the following technical challenge. We'd like to be able to move information within the DOD at great distances without having being stuck with faxes and mail. Is there a faster way to move? Literally, the, the, the initial premise was, could we move information other than mail and by fax? Remember, you know, some of our old, some of us are old enough to remember when technology was a drum that rotated, that scanned hmm. uh, paper, transmitted a, a, a across a digital wire, and then a drum on the other side. The, the scan brought brought the product, and you would literally sit there and watch the drum rotate and rotate and rotate. Um, I can still remember that sound. Very, very slow. You couldn't really, you could do individual pages at a time this way, but the idea of, I want to send you a 200-page document, not really workable. So out of that original premise, what wasn't in there? So we said to ourselves, well, nobody's going to want to steal any of this stuff. It's unclassified. So security is not a big deal. Identity. We know who the users are. They're all going to be initially. They're known people. They're government entities. In this case, they're DOD. So we don't really have to worry about identity. We don't really have to worry about security. We view this kind of as a way to complement existing capability in the form of mail and fax. So we don't really need redundancy and backup. And as a result, those kind of initial premises for the design have played out in a way now where we're going. So we've built this global engine, huge economic growth, 
huge, the ability to bring people together and share knowledge. But we really didn't think about defensibility. We really didn't think about redundancy. And who would have thought that identity and asking ourselves, so is this entity, this person, this is it really, is that really them? All those questions we're asking ourselves now when they first started this, now it's hard to believe almost 50 years ago, no one thought about that. So over time, we built this huge system that to your fundamental point of your question, one of the questions we're dealing with now is, so do you kind of create something totally new and build defensibility, re reliability, redundancy, and uh, the means to ensure identity? Do you, do you rebuild it with something new or do you kind of keep it where it is? My comment would be, look, the capital, the sunk capital costs in this structure right now are so high, I can't see us totally replacing it anytime soon. Mm -hmm. So I think the question becomes, how can you attempt to address some of these issues using this existing framework and then ask ourselves, how do we change this over time? And you're seeing the way we do domain control, naming infrastructure, all those things have evolved over time and they continue to evolve. So this, it's man-made, it's global, but it's going to be a changing dynamic. Admiral Mike Rogers, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. That's fascinating. Now, the rest of this episode is dedicated to analysing the siege of Winterfell in episode three of season eight of Game of Thrones. If you are a Game of Thrones fan and you're not up to date, or you're someone who is planning on watching Game of Thrones and has somehow managed to avoid spoilers at this point, stop listening. This is the last segment for this episode, so you're not going to miss anything other than spoilers. Malcolm, Hannah, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I wanted to sit down with you both uh, as resident Game of Thrones watchers at Aspie. Um, <laughs> You know, the last episode, uh, the latest episode to come out, uh, episode three of season eight, the final season, and this is your last spoiler warning. Um, you would have heard some uh, several other spoiler warnings in this episode, but if you are not up to date on Game of Thrones, stop listening now. This is the last segment of the podcast. If you listen further, it's that's up to you. You've made this decision willingly. We're going to be talking all about episode three. So... I need to talk about it because I have feelings and one of them is, uh, am I, Renee Jones, uh, someone who has nothing to do with military strategy at all, a better military commander and strategist than Jon Snow or Denny Targaryen? Like, what happened in the Siege of Winterfell? Um, is it just me or was there like several just glaring mistakes in their strategy and, and tactics and logistics of the whole operation? Look, you quite, could quite possibly be a better uh, tactician than Jon Snow. We've seen over a number of different seasons that the battle tactics uh, during Game of Thrones is usually a head-on approach, um, throwing your forces against the opposition and, and hopefully coming out on top. Uh, but this episode was really, I think it was one for the books in uh, some really interesting and quite poor battle tactics. I mean, especially um, because this is the battle, you know. Right. The, I mean, eight seasons have been building up to this battle where, you know, the Night King and his army of the dead come for Winterfell. I mean, Malcolm, your thoughts? Yeah, look, uh, clearly these people haven't been playing uh, Total War uh, on PC <laughs> um, because they don't understand how to use their forces. Uh, I think the first mistake that they made was not identifying where the, the night army was well before they got to Winterfell. I mean, they have two dragons. 
That's yeah. air power. Get them up and doing airborne reconnaissance to find out where that army is and harass that army before they even get to Winterfell. They surrendered the initiative from the outset. Mm. And then when you had the night army on the, on the field ready to assault, you couldn't see them. And so, therefore, they did the most logical thing, of course, which is to send their cavalry, the Dothraki, straight into an unknown force without understanding what the nature of the enemy was. I, that particularly, let's jump on that point because I, as soon as that started happening, I was like, what is going on? This is, this is madness. You've got catapults there. And it's, so it's your, what, your airborne, actually, hold on, I've, I've got notes. I am so riled up about this. I made notes <laughs> on this. So your artillery advantage um, is, is presumably those catapults, The trebuchets. Right? Yeah, whatever those things are. Mm. Right. You're the expert. <laughs> um, they use them once um, as they waste their entire cavalry. Well, look, you've, you've got... Um, elite soldiers with the Unsullied, mm -hmm. you've got Dothraki, both of which are more than able to do scouting operations and reconnaissance operations well forward of the front line near Winterfell. They could have identified the, the forward elements of that, uh, that adversary force and then marked them with fire arrows mm. and then the dragons could have come in and uh, attacked them from the air. So they didn't understand how to use reconnaissance. They mm. didn't understand how to use air power. And as you say, the use of the trebuchets was completely ineffective. But the most appalling thing was they sent their entire cavalry into a charge against an unknown enemy position and they got slaughtered. And so they wasted that entire force uh, without really using it effectively. Let alone wasting the extra special magic from the Red Woman who came for the, you know, the last minute surprise, I'm going to light up your... What are the Dothraki? Are they what are those things called? Their Sickles swords? or something. But 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 yeah, yeah, I couldn't understand why they did that because that immediately gave away their position to the army of the dead. Right. It, it begs the broader question: Was there a commander? You know, who made that call to charge? Was that was Jorah leading that? Was there a broader commander of that operation who was in charge of the siege of Winterfell? Because it's unclear. So it definitely looked like there was a broader plan in place that was agreed upon beforehand, mm. but it went completely out of the window. Mm. Um, so you had, you know, your two dragons, Jon Snow, um, Daenerys, both on the high point, waiting for the Night King to be separated from his armies to, to appear. Um, so then it would be two dragons against one. You've got superior firepower. Um, but as soon as Daenerys saw her Dothraki, who were loyal to her, go into battle, it, it all just went out the window. Mm. There was emotion involved. There was very little intelligence work. Um, there was no battlefield analysis. Uh, you had squadron leaders um, who were commanding, you know, the separate parts of the forces that were making decisions on the fly once um, the larger battle plan sort of went out the window. And you started to see right from the very beginning, it really just started to fall apart. Mm. With absolutely no backup plans. Right. I mean, major, major, major spoiler, if Arya was not there, they would have lost that battle, presumably. Yeah, so yep. that, that's definitely um, one of the, the key factors. If Arya wasn't there to eventually, spoiler alert, uh, kill the Night King mm. um, and hadn't feigned her original attempt as well, so dropped that dagger down to her second hand, mm the entire um, plan would have completely collapsed on itself. I think, I think it was very obvious the Night King is the centre of gravity. Mm. And if you attack the centre of gravity, that has the decisive effect that delivers the strategic success. And so, therefore, 
they should have gone after the Night King from the outset rather than engaging this big attritional battle that wasted lives and ultimately uh, led to the point whereby Winterfell almost fell. Uh, to the And you had... Um, civilians hold up in the crypt. Oh my why days. not evacuate them to the pack- south? <laughs> yeah, so why were there no evacuation plans? I mean, how long would it have taken for them to prepare for such a battle and pre- so prepare for that siege? They had at least a day's notice that they were going to be there by, you know, dawn or whatever it was that we got from Torment, I mm. think. Yep. Gave us the, you know, the notice. Why were the women and children not evacuated? And why on earth would they have been in the crypt? Your your enemy can raise the dead. Mm. I just like that's just insane to me. Mm. Sorry, I'm getting very rolled up. Well, once again, I mean, this is definitely this is an intelligence failure. You mm. haven't done your proper reconnaissance. You haven't done your battlefield analysis. You haven't done your best case scenario. Your most likely, your most dangerous scenario planning. Uh, all of this should have been in the battle planning. You should have mm. worked out that we already know that the Night King can raise the dead mm. um, because we've seen that in previous episodes. So there should have been a discussion about, okay, what's our most dangerous scenario? What if he raises our armies that have previously been slaughtered? Mm. What happens if we send our most vulnerable into the crypts where there are dead mm. bodies mm. Um, and then he raises those? Mm. So it really is just an absolute schmozzle of an intelligence failure um, mm. and a really clear uh, example of, of not putting a, an emphasis on intelligence work in battle planning. Yeah. And I think it also shows a complete lack of understanding and the importance of gaining and sustaining the initiative mm. uh, and taking that away from the adversary and also the importance of mobility on the battlefield and the importance of striking first. Mm. And so, therefore, they gave all the advantages to the Night King and, and the Army of the Night uh, and denied themselves all their potential advantages. They had manoeuvre elements with the Dothraki and also with the Unsullied. They had two dragons, which were their air power, which they didn't really use all that effectively. Mm. What I would have done would have been have those two dragons go after the Night King's dragon and take that dragon out. So they had control of the air. Uh, but just very quickly, do they know that that dragon exists? Yes. yes. They do? Yes. Okay, great. Because Daenerys lost one of her dragons. Yeah, yeah but, does she, but losing one of her dragons, she doesn't know necessarily that that is. She does. We saw that in the last yeah. season. Yeah. Sorry. So they should Catching have <laughs> gained and sustained control of the air and then been able to strike the army of the dead mm-hmm. at will as they approach Winterfell rather than wait for that army to get to Winterfell and then throw their forces in a mad, meaningless sacrifice to, to, you know, to lose everything. Yep, sure. Okay, so moving away from, you know, the intelligence failures and, and more to what you're saying, Malcolm, because, I mean, my understanding for any siege-type battle situation, which is very little, um, is the advantage not that you are, you have the castle, you have, like, you want them to come to you? Like, if they had... Um, I mean, those trenches, what was it, the, the, the moat of fire or whatever mm, that yep. thing was that surrounded it? Like, first of all, why didn't they have more of those? Why was there only contingency that it was a dragon lighting that fire? Um, and, you know, when that horde comes to you, you should have had, like, yeah, the air power from the dragons taking them mm. out. But, I mean, how does siege battle tactics work? Siege warfare is really all about prolonged battle. Mm. It's about it could take months to mm. do a siege of Winterfell mm. if you were going to do it realistically. Yeah. And it's about holding off the enemy until he tires, until you can regather your, gather your forces and counterattack. But they would have known that they didn't have months. They had maybe hours yeah. um, to defeat that force. 
And so, as you say, the way they set up their defensive systems was not really that effective. That single trench would not have held the the dead back. Mm. And um, they had no way of defending their the castle walls mm. uh, effectively mm. uh, and so it, it just that not only did they get the the any offensive approach wrong they lacked a completely effective defense mm. and so you know as i said Arya stark saves the day but if she hadn't been there then you know game of thrones would have ended very differently mm. uh and i think um let's talk about game of thrones ending i mean you're in a uh, you've got a completely de- depleted uh, coalition of North forces at this stage going up against Cersei without her elephants and the Golden Company. I mean, predictions for the last three episodes? Well, I mean, you have a North that is incredibly depleted of forces, mm. that is weary, battle-weary, that has lost, um, I mean, a, a huge amount of equipment mm. um, and doesn't know exactly what they're going to be facing with Cersei. Mm. Um, and, I mean, Cersei has uh, the Golden Company, so mm. has, you know, hired mercenaries who are well-rested and very well-equipped. I don't think it looks good for the North. Um, mm. That said, I mean, as we've seen in previous seasons, you've definitely seen um, battles go interesting ways that we mm. don't expect. So mm. really I suppose anything can happen at this stage. Mm. Look, I, I think it's, you know we all understand it's probably going to turn out in the end well for the North and for Daenerys and Jon. Um, and there's that whole issue of who ultimately t- takes the charge uh, once that battle is won. Is it, um, I forget his name, but... Jon Snow as the Targaryen, Aegon Targaryen, the Aegon Targaryen versus da- Daenerys. I mean, that's an issue. But maybe we might get democracy. Instead. You might, uh, but but I think that it's going to be this this next stage of the season is going to be a, a series of hard fought campaigns, uh, and ultimately, you know, I would predict the North wins, but I could be wrong. Mm. Okay, well, thank you so much both for your time and talking me through my very emotional response to the last episode. Um, Thanks so much for listening. And if you are interested in hearing uh, further analysis on Game of Thrones military battles, let us know and we'll cover, I guess, the final battles. Yes. Um, Thank you. And just remember that when the Game of Thrones finishes, (laughs) there's always season four of The Expanse to look forward to, (laughs) which is much better in my opinion. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks, Renee. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks.